Hello, I'm Rashad Tabakuwala, author, business advisor, and supposed futurist. And welcome to the What Next podcast, smart conversations in a time of rapid change. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you all are in the world. Welcome to yet another episode of What Next. Today, we are very excited because we have a futurist in our midst. And this time, it isn't me. It is Andrew Curry, who is the director of the School of International Futures and who previously was the head of Kantar Futures and has had over 20 years of scenario planning, looking ahead, and a lot more. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome, Richard. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, it's uh, terrific to have you. And can you tell us a little bit about your current position at the School of the International Futures and how you made it there? Certainly I can. Um, so, so if the School of International Futures is a nonprofit practice that uses uh, futures and foresight to help people and organizations make change for the better, I joined them a year ago. Um, before that, I'd worked for um, an organization that started life as the Henley Center um, and uh, changed its name several times. I actually worked at the same organization over 20 years, but it kept evolving and morphing. Um, I actually started my career, um, I won't give you my whole life story here, obviously, but uh, I started my career as a financial journalist for the BBC. I worked as a television producer. By the 1990s, I was... Uh, running an interactive television project for uh, a UK cable company. Um, and actually, I joined the Henley Center in 1999 as a technology consultant. And the Henley Center then was a tiny part of the uh, WPP group. It was 30 people and a London office. It was core business with social trends and uh, forecasting. It had just dropped the name forecasting from its title. Um, and early on while I was there, uh, Jeff Mulgan, who was in the uh, cabinet office, sort of just at the advent of the uh, Labour government then, um, sent us a brief. He wanted to make uh, Whitehall more uh, future-facing, but he needed some evidence to do that, and we won the contract to kind of prove the case for futures. Um, and as a result of that report, uh, Jeff Mulgan sent out an instruction to the civil service that when they were bidding for money, they would need to be able to take the future into account um, Otherwise, they would lose some of their, the funding they were bidding for. So effectively, I spent the next 10 years doing futures projects for uh, public sector organizations. After the coalition government came to power, um, we changed our organization a bit by then. I sort of moved into a combination of thought leadership and corporate, more corporate foresight. One of the key drivers behind your sort of thinking is scenario planning. Can you explain to our audience what scenario planning is and how you do it? Of course I can, yes, absolutely. So um, futures is actually quite a young practice, a young discipline. I mean, it emerged, depending which histories you read, it emerged um, out of the Second World War, people like RAND and SRI um, in America. In Europe, it emerged from uh, some of the reconstruction of uh, post-war Europe in the 1950s. And um, it took quite a long time for um, concepts to settle down. One of the concepts I often use is a quote from Roy O'Mara. He says that we're basically dealing with three things at any given time. 
we're dealing with possible futures, we're dealing with probable futures, we're dealing with preferred futures. And possible futures are effectively where scenarios come in. What you're trying to do is design multiple distinctive coherent views of the future. So you can uh, test your ideas about strategy, about policy, about innovation against a range of outcomes. And so you can actually make them more robust, more credible, sometimes more imaginative as well. So Andrew, as part of your scenario planning, given where we are in the world of COVID-19, what do you see the future of travel post COVID-19? I think um, travel is one of those areas that uh, has really kind of suffered from one of the biggest shocks from COVID-19. You know, certainly if you look at the um, future of aviation, the numbers around the future of aviation that you were seeing in published reports, you know, up, up to the middle of last year were sort of, you know, a 60% plus growth in uh, flights worldwide. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. But I think one of the things that's interesting when you look at that through a kind of futures lens is that some of the uh, trends which um, suddenly seem to have kicked in as a result of COVID are probably trends which were already happening. You know, we'd already seen, for example, a kind of declining willingness for business people to just hop on a plane. You know, actually, they were less willing to disrupt their family life for the sake of a, a business trip. And part of that's driven by technology. And, you know, it's also been influenced by values, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, if you think about fathers who were business people in the 1960s or the 1970s, they were largely absent or quite often absent from their, their children's lives, their family lives, and that's just not the uh, case anymore. So, you know, you actually have seen a kind of decline in uh, business travel, certainly in the richer world, long, long before COVID happened. And obviously the other um, issue that was stretching um, the aviation industry is that getting to a climate neutral or carbon neutral um, aviation industry is a real stretch. You know, actually, I did some work on that for a client quite recently, and it's not really possible to do it without all sorts of um, kind of uh, clever effects about offsetting and all the rest of it. You can't actually get to a technological solution for that. So, you know, I think what we've probably seen as a result of COVID-19, I've looked at the aviation industry here more than maybe the others, um, is that it'll probably accelerate trends which are already there. You know, I'm expecting it'll also accelerate a trend towards um, electric vehicles, especially if there's pressure on um, public transport because people are reluctant to travel on it. That will increase the pressure to sort of accelerate the uh, introduction of hybrid and electric cars, for example. Um, we've already seen in quite a lot of um, cities, um, cities taking quite big steps to improve their cycling infrastructure. So. A lot of, you know, pandemics reveal your weaknesses. They also play to your strengths. You know, a lot of the uh, trends that we've seen around travel were kind of already there, but uh, what the uh, COVID-19 pandemic did is just sort of slammed them up against the wall all at once. Also, Andrew, with regard to um, most of us now are working from home, what does the future of work look like? I think we are going to see businesses uh, consolidate the um, the learning and the technology that they've had to put in place for COVID-19. You know, obviously there's a difference here between um, white-collar workers and blue-collar workers. Um, but, you know, I know that publicists has already sort of moved already pre-COVID to a, to a model where people work from home more. Um, I work for a completely virtual organization, so we've kind of been spending time sort of in some ways sharing good practice with people who are suddenly having to do it for the first time. Um, so I think we will see um, 
emptier offices. We may see um, a bit of a squeeze on the um, property market as a result. I think we we probably will still see offices which are um, being used in the middle of town, but they're going to be more like the um, the old-fashioned club. You know, you go in there to sort of deal with the complicated problem where it's quicker to do it face by face. You know, you know, without without getting too close to the UK, it's kind of interesting that uh, the um, the EU and the UK are meeting face to face to conduct the next phase of their trade negotiations. Um, as a result of Brexit, you know, because actually they're complicated stuff, which actually you can't really do remotely. You need the uh, people in the room. Um, I think there's going to be a, a different position maybe for um, for blue-collar workers. You know, some of the uh, things that we've seen uh, both in the COVID crisis and before have been quite sort of uh, interesting. Either those workers being more valued than they perhaps were previously because actually they were taking risks to keep essential services moving but at the same time you know also a lot of um management practices which are about monitoring and super supervision and surveillance so i think one of the things we're going to see over the course of the next two or three years is a kind of a, a conflict line about that you know and, and white collar employee employees employers too have been doing some of that so i think we'll see a conflict about that which is you know yes you can survey me but it means i probably don't really want to work for you um, and I think we'll end up sort of probably with the uh, businesses which are concerned more about keeping and maintaining their talent, moving to a model where they trust their staff, um, and businesses which maybe are more concerned about efficiency and margin and squeezing everything out, being willing to lose their staff more quickly, but get as much as they can out of them while they're still working for them. I see that's quite a big battle line, actually, over the next three or four years. So... Andrew, one of the parts of future planning which you've been involved in is a concept called Three Horizons. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I can. Um, I mean, obviously, there is a McKinsey model called Three Horizons, which basically advises managers to think about the near term, the medium term, and the long term. And uh, the futures version of Three Horizons is uh, a version of that, but it's, it's more about thinking through system change. Um, and the reason it's valuable is that one of the problems that futurists often have, and it often doesn't give us a good reputation, is we can be very good at talking about what the future might be, you know, what the scenarios might be, but we're very bad at saying, well, yeah, but what does that mean I should be doing now? Um, what should I, what should I be sort of, how, how should I be changing what I do? How, I, how should I be acting in the present? And what Three Horizons basically does and you can use it as a scenario testing tool, or you can use it as a way to help you to a preferred vision, is it says, this Horizon 1, this is your current system. This is the way the world we're in at the moment with all of its assumptions and its locked-in systems and all the rest of it. This future that either we're testing to see what it looks like, you know, we don't necessarily like it if it's a scenario, but we're still going to need to understand what it is and how you might get there. Um, or this preferred future, which is the kind of the vision that we have for uh, our, our business, um, is Horizon 3. And Horizon 2 is uh, the process by which you get there. You know, so actually all systems change is messy. All systems change involves conflict because, you know, you're going from one set of systems that everybody understands to a completely different systems where there's going to be different winners and different losers. So the bit in the middle is always very rocky. So one of the ways that you can 
think about it. So it's a mapping tool. It sort of helps you just think about what does that change look like? What are the uh, conflicts in the middle? What are the opportunities in the middle? What are the leverage points? The other way you can think about it is a kind of a, a dialogue process for change, because one of the things that happens when you start thinking about system change like that is you can see the sorts of people who um, align around those three horizons are very different sorts of people. You know, the horizon three people are often visionaries. They're kind of dreamers. They sort of, you know, they they look at the um, the way the world could be and ask why not, to use Robert Kennedy's uh, famous phrase. The Horizon One people, on the other hand, they are kind of maintainers, you know, sometimes managers, but maintainers, they're the ones who are making sure that the current system works for people. You know, they're quite often the people who are worrying about whether we're going to eat tomorrow, you know, that, where's the money going to come from? And, and the people in the Horizon Two framework tend to have a kind of an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, so they're sort of looking at the systems as it's changing and saying, we, we could maybe try that, or maybe we could try this, maybe we could do that, that might work. Um, and obviously, you know, if you put a visionary and a maintainer in the same room together without, you know, bothering to help them think about the fact they've got fundamentally different worldviews, you know, that can be a really, really unhelpful conversation. Whereas if you actually sort of put them in a room and sort of have them think about the value that each might bring to the other, you have a much more productive conversation. And so Three Horizons as a model is a good way of just mapping the way change might happen, but it's also quite a useful tool for making it easier for change to happen by helping people um, understand that other people have different views of change that, that actually might help you achieve things that you're trying to achieve. It's three lines on a page is the way that one of the other people who's involved, a guy called Bill Sharp, sometimes describes it when he's training it, but it just allows you to have a single conversation about the future you know, what's and all. Perfect. And uh, so in many ways, when we try to do it ourselves, we want to make sure we have different mindsets in the room. And we also know we're talking about three horizons versus, you know, one, so that we don't spend most of our time being confused. So you've been working in the futures industry for a long, long time. So how has the futures industry changed? Like looking back to when you started to maybe mid-career to now, have there been any changes? So has the future of future changed? Um, I think um, in terms of practice, there's been kind of one quite big change. When I started, um, all of the, um, the dominant practice, all of the literature was around, um, you know, effectively kind of corporate scenarios, usually using two by twos, very much influenced by big structural factors that you could look at. Um, right. And and typically, um, values were neglected. Um, and also the role of agency tended to be neglected. You know, the dominant model when I started was that you looked at the scenarios you didn't have very much scope to influence the future, but you needed to make sure you were alert to the future and you could respond to it. And that's not a bad thing. You know, that's actually quite a good set of um, mental disciplines for, you know, for any group of managers, any, any board. Um, but I think what's changed in the last 20 years is that that model has kind of run out of steam. And we've seen a whole wave of um, new approaches, whether it's design futures, whether it's the anticipation school, 
um, post-normal futures. There's a whole lot of language about these things, uh, causal-led analysis. And they're all different ways of talking about the fact that, um, you know, you can't just observe. You know, the minute you're observing, you're part of the system. And they're also much more interested in agency. So to some extent, the kind of the dominant model of futures is now about a model which says that rather than being out there and you've got to observe, the future emerges from things which are latent in the present environment, which you, can, you can't control those, but you can influence them by how you choose to act now. And so futures work to quite a large extent is moved to a point where it's more about understanding what can you do to influence the potential futures, which is sort of lying around you. You know, you're sort of walking across them as you, uh, as you go to work, if you like, um, to actually sort of create change for the better. I think that's probably the biggest single change. There's been quite a huge uh, change of practice in, in just 20 years. Got it. Now, when you were at Cantor and the different variations of Cantor, the name before, you obviously were associated with a agency holding company in WPP. Um, if you were to make some predictions about the future of agencies and holding companies, what would that be? Um, well, whew. there is no politically correct answer. So say whatever you think it, you believe. Um, I don't think I'm going to say anything very surprising here. I think, uh, you know, automation and technology is going to take a lot of the money out of the research end of, uh, of the agency world. Um, I think that, um, agencies which, um, are doing work, which is, complex and involves culture will still be able to, um, you know, gain good returns for their work. You know, so as soon as you're starting to do that stuff, which is about combining soft and hard things, you're going to be doing well. Um, I think uh, one of the things I'm quite interested in is that uh, we're seeing increasingly um, sophisticated ways of um, looking at qualitative research in new ways and qualitative information in new ways. I think. Uh, there's probably going to be people who do well, do well in that. Um, I also suspect that um, we're probably going to see a, a slight retreat of um, Google and Facebook from their completely dominant positions in the advertising markets, whether that's done by regulation or whether it's just done by um, different business relationships. I'm not quite sure, but I think uh, it's, you know, the, there's a famous, um, you know, Herb Stein's law, which says if a thing can't go on forever, it will stop. Um, you know, when you look at the growth in those advertising businesses that Google and Facebook sit on top of, you kind of feel that probably if a thing can't go on forever, it will stop. So I think we're going to see some sort of adjustment in that. And I'm not quite sure where that money will necessarily go to in terms of uh, the kind of the advertising and marketing sector. Um, you know, and obviously, the you know, we will still see new... Um, new types of platforms coming in and sort of being, um, you know, sort of challenging for some of those, um, those revenues as well. So Andrew, one of what you do in your organization is build capabilities of uh, leaders and of people. How do you do that? What are your tricks? Um, well, in terms of capabilities, um, you know, actually, SOIF was founded as the School of International Futures. Um, and it was actually founded to help public policymakers 
use applied foresight and futures skills in in you know public policy making. So, and that's a core part of the business. We still run an annual retreat for 24 typically public sector people who want to improve their future skills. And I think there's probably three things that we're trying to do when we're, we're running that. Um, we're also just moving this online for a, a client we're just starting to, uh, to work with as it happens. And the first is, I think, that futures is about a set of ideas about how the world changes. We've talked about some of that on this, uh, this conversation, you know, around the fact that the change starts from the outside in um, and then works through about sort of looking for where the complexity is, about trying to understand how to uh, make those connections. Uh, the second thing is that um, well, one of the things we say is you should be agnostic about futures methods. You know, there's lots of methods out there. There's, you know, there's, uh, I could run six or seven different scenarios, methods with different strengths and weaknesses. Um, but actually, you'd need to be quite prescriptive about process. And typically, what gets neglected in futures work is people don't spend long enough trying to work out what the question is and what the system is that they're trying to understand. And the second is that they don't spend long enough working out how they're going to bring their learning and their finding back into the uh, organization again. Um, you know, we talk about scoping, ordering, investigating, and in integrating. And the integrating is the bit where you you know, you add, you add some sort of new thing to, for example, the way a decision gets made or, you know, some, the way that you're measuring performance because you're trying to uh, make sure that you're um, keeping track of where the future's going. I think the third thing, and this is probably the most important, is a lot of the learning we do is very experiential. So one of the things that we do in our retreat is we have a live challenge, which is an open question. You know, it's not a case study. We don't know what the answer is. It's an organization that wants to understand how some bit of the world that they look at is going. Last year at our retreat, that tend, that was around digital rights, for example. Um, and we then get them to, during the course of the retreat, it's a five-day event. In the case of the online thing, it'll be over the course of five or six weeks. We get them to use the tools that we're um, training them in and the approaches we're training them in to apply them to this live challenge and then report that back to the client at the end of the week. So. Some of that's about just putting people under a bit of pressure, but some of it's about getting them to live with the fact that while you're sort of trying to process what's going on with the kind of, you know, in futures thinking is you have to be living with a certain amount of uncertainty. You know, you don't, there's a period in the middle where you really don't know. And so, so get, getting comfortable with that is probably one of the most important things. And finally, the next generation of leaders. We've talked a lot about generations and horizons but you also build the next generation of leaders. And for us at Publicis, we have a lot of uh, initiatives in this area and obviously a lot of amazing young talent. So some sort of key pointers for them to take away from your training? Um, we actually have quite an interesting program, which is supported by the um, Media Network. It's obviously a very sort of substantial foundation called The Next Generation futures program and um, every year it's so in our we're just in our third year at the moment um, we select about 15 people under 35 who have sent us a piece of work that needs a bit of developing but nonetheless is about linking futures or foresight work to some sort of change in their um, either their community of interest or their physical community um, and we'll we'll work with them on that and we'll give them mentoring support there's a 
sum of money for the um, the outstanding um, contribution, which uh, helps them do additional research. Um, so I think one of the things that's really striking about that, and I think this is maybe a theme that's come through this conversation, is that generation is much more connected to change. You know, they they're applying futures and foresight methods, often quite light touch futures and foresight methods, but they're doing some really inspirational things with them in in their in their different communities in terms of uh, enabling people to do things differently. You know, sort of. In, you know, there's a one one of the uh, winners last year was sort of helping, sort of using futures methods to sort of develop a whole kind of um, learning system for um, young women who might otherwise be excluded from education, for example. Um, and and so um, I think really the um, the lesson I've taken from that is that actually. Sometimes, you know, the um, making sure that you connect into practice is at least as important as making sure the theory is right. You know, they're using quite often using light touch methods, but the transformational effect they're having is terrific. And actually, um, literally this morning, uh, we published uh, uh, the um, the Futures Manifesto by the uh, current group of uh, people on the, on the program, which tells stories from 2050 from all around the world. Um, and I, I can obviously make sure that you have a link that you can pop into the uh, the show notes of that because it's again it's full of interesting stuff. It's got a lot of energy. It's a really genuinely global view, um, and quite exciting to read as well. We have uh, had the opportunity and the pleasure of listening to Andrew Curry, and he has shared a lot with us. And in fact, one of the things he has shared is a perspective from 2050 in the form of a document that you will see as part of these podcast notes. So make sure you see those. Andrew has shared with us the concepts of three horizons, talked to us a lot about how change comes from outside, how we all are going to be in some sort of probable futures, and that uh, in many ways, the future doesn't fit in the containers of the past, but hopefully we will all be contained in the future. Thank you very much, Andrew. What Next, a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.